Tech Trends Podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by IMTS. Uh, rebuilding the supply chain starts now. IMTS is building a knowledge warehouse to rethink, re-engage, and re-establish manufacturing and supply chain. The past few months have unveiled underlying issues with the supply chain, and it's time to discuss these problems and how to move forward. Please visit imts.com supply chain for more info. Uh, if you go there, I highly recommend the interview with uh, Roy Gentry from Azac and the article titled Rebuilding the Supply Chain and How Did We Get Here? I am Benjamin Moses, the Director of Manufacturing Technology. I'm here with Stephen Lamarca, Manufacturing Technology Analyst. Steve, how are you doing today? Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Better now. Better now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's late enough in the day that you're doing all right. Late in the day, you know, talking tech is like... <laughs> It's it's certainly a lot better than uh, having to work on it, but uh, <laughs> actually that's debatable. But you yeah. know, it's this is more relaxing than actual work. So awesome, yeah. We're recording a little bit early. Stevie, you want to tell us why we're recording early? We are, month? yeah. We are for um, the IMTS network. Actually, they are uh, paying to send me on a trip up to up north um, to New England. Um, I'm going to be driving around different facilities in. Uh, uh, New England, specifically Vermont, Massachusetts, New Hampshire. Um, I think I might be hitting New Jersey on the way back. Oh, I feel sorry um, for you there. <laughs> oh, yeah, whatever, whatever. It's fun though. I'm just, I, I, you know, I, I love road tripping. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love going on factory tours. Honestly, even though it is work, it doesn't feel like work to me. Yeah. Because like, I, 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 we've been doing all of these meetings, like setting up the interviews and whatnot. Um, with the and, and like you know the Jules who's organizing everything and absolutely crushing it, setting all this up for me and making it as easy as possible for me. And our film crew, uh, which they're doing all the hard work, I'm just the idiot on screen uh, <laughs> talking to the smart people. Um, You're the eye candy. Honestly, <laughs> it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like work to me. Sure, I'm going on a tour. It just so happens that there's cameras around. Yeah, and cool. I'm just asking the questions on. You know, I I love looking at metal, man. What yeah. can I say? I'll but, say uh, yeah, one our first spot we're hitting uh, Windsor, Vermont to uh, visit the uh, American Precision Museum. That's cool. And even though I you know spent all my college years up in Vermont, I didn't even number one, I, I didn't even know. That. Manufacturing. I didn't know the ins and outs of the manufacturing industry then. Yes, I had physics on my mind. But number two, I'm I'm just glad to be going back to Vermont uh, without the stress of school burdening me, because <laughs> I really think it's the most beautiful state in the country. Oh man, that's a that's a bold statement. So more beautiful than like truth? Montana or Wyoming. All right. So I haven't <laughs> been to Montana. Well, I haven't I either. Haven't heard- <laughs> I I've just seen them heard on TV. That much niceness about Wyoming. I haven't heard that it's bad, but I've heard Montana's pretty awesome. Okay. I mean, okay. all the supercar owners uh, register their cars over there. That's for a different reason, but I digress. Um, Vermont, it's like what's so cool is driving up to Vermont. Like the first time I drove up to Vermont uh, for for school, for going to college up there. Um, you know, as, as you go north from D.C. where we are, the D.C. area. Yep. You know where the air is somewhat clean. It, you know it's not Los Angeles, but uh, like, like all <laughs> smoggy, like at least LA used to be. Yep. Um, but as you get further north, it starts getting dirtier. Like you get into Maryland, and it's like, ugh. and then on top, that's also soiled by Maryland drivers. But yep. I digress. Let's be nice. Uh, you get further north, and you get into Delaware, then you get into New Jersey, 
which I don't know if you've ever driven up the turnpike before, but it's not you pleasurable to yourself. You look at the license plates that say New Jersey, the garden state. And it's like, <laughs> then why does it smell like a dump? <laughs> and then you see all these massive plants on the yeah. side of the road with like flames coming out of the smokestacks. I digress. I'm being really mean right now. But anyway, you get to New, New Connecticut, you get past New York and you get into Connecticut. And it's like, oh man, it's starting to look kind of nice. And then you get into Vermont and the air, the atmosphere mm-hmm. uh, just hits you. It's like driving into a wall of pine. Wow. You just smell evergreen everywhere. Um, it's, you feel like you're not breathing as hard because it, <laughs> the, just the oxygen is so much more rich there. Wow. Even though it's higher up, the elevation is, you know, higher. It, it's just it, the quality of the air there can change you. That's impressive. Yeah. What, what's your uh, favorite memory from back in the day when you were back in school up in Vermont? Oh, man. I, I, you know, I have to admit, we talked about this earlier, and I've got so many fond memories. Yeah. One of my, I think my favorite memory was um, the first snowfall in oh, Vermont. that's cool. Where all the Vermonters were like, oh, this is a light winter this year. The snow's up to my waist. <laughs> <laughs> this is a light snowfall this year. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, growing up, uh, raised by a bunch of boomers, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that they loved saying was, you know, back in my day, <laughs> we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to school. And if you had to piano, if you had to take piano lessons, you had to drag the piano with you. <laughs> and they'd say a bunch of ridiculous stuff. And I just remember grinning to myself, like my first winter there. And it's like, dude, I'm walking to class every day yeah. uphill in the snow both <laughs> ways. Because Vermont is just nothing but hills. Yeah, nothing but hills I mean, and it snow. Means, you know, it's French for Green Mountain. So, I mean, it's just Doesn't... the Green Mountain state. I didn't know and that. It's just green mountains everywhere. That's awesome. And it was it was so cool. Um, another good memory, this is probably a bad memory for most people was uh actually threw my first rod in uh in vermont oh really i I, I blew my first car's engine not my first car but it blew my first engine in uh in vermont because um you know my college friends and i my roommates and i we really wanted taco bell and i had the best running car at the time Mm -hmm. for very long and you know even something as simple and as you would imagine, as common as something like fast food is, 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 you know, it seems like a McDonald's is right across the street from a McDonald's down here um, or, or Starbucks, you know, whatever you want. In Vermont, you have to drive either north or south 45 minutes to get to a Taco Bell. Oh, that's a little far. We wanted some Taco Bell. And so it was like, you know, are we going to go north or south? Are we going to go to Burlington? Or we can go to the border with New Hampshire. Um, (laughs) So we're driving, and on the way down, um, I start hearing this, like, kind of knocking. And I'm thinking, is that an exhaust leak? Uh And starts progressively getting louder. And then I start sweating bullets because it's getting really loud now. And everybody else in the car is silent (laughs) because they hear it too. And we have no idea what it is, but we know it's something more than an exhaust leak. So I end up turning around and I'm driving back up north. Um, This is Interstate 89, 45-minute drives. It's a 45-minute drive. There's only like four exits (laughs) in that 45 minute drive no joke we have to get back to exit five we make a turn we turn around we make a u-turn 
uh, illegally at like one of those uh, police turnarounds sure. um, right before exit three. So we're not even, we may have been almost halfway there and uh, it's my car. I start heading back North towards school Yep. and no joke. I see the sign for exit five. There's just one more hill to go up. Right. Right. As we're cresting, cresting the top of that hill, oil light comes on <laughs> RPMs drop to zero oh, no. and I lose power. Everything. Oh, I no. still have headlights on. Sure. Um, I check the brakes and I'm like, I, at first it's like, Oh, the brakes are still responsive. And then I hit the brakes again. Nope. Foot goes to the floor. <laughs> They're still working, sure. but I just lost the boosted brakes. Right. Right. And I'm like, Oh my God, are we going to make it? <laughs> and so the engine's dead. Completely. I, dead. I, I, it, it's not, a, it's a 1990, seven camp no 1998 toyota camry the square guy and it's an automatic yeah um which you know bulletproof car long story short <laughs> until you that, drove it <laughs> until i drove it because it, it was it had a really finicky dipstick that was hard to read mm, sure and it always looked like it had oil in it because like half of the dipstick would like one side of the dipstick would say full right. and the oil would be up to the full but on the other edge of the dipstick of the other side of the blade if you would it'd be on empty <laughs> And I realized I should have, I should have, you know, measured it. So both sides said full. Sure. Anyway, lesson learned, uh, change your oil people. Uh, anyway, engine blows and we're just hitting exit five. And it's like, lucky for us, the four of us, there's three other people in the car with me. It's all downhill. Oh, nice. To the house. Yep. And no joke. It's like five miles and it's all downhill. And we finally, we're, we're almost home. There's one more heavy, like steep downhill yep. with a runaway truck, truck ramp and everything. And I'm like, dude, we got to maintain momentum. But at the same time, I don't want the car getting away from me. Oh, and there's no power steering either. So I'm <laughs> yeah, putting like right. my entire body into this thing. And anyway, we survive the downhill. Uh, we don't have to take the runaway truck ramp, even though I was planning on it. <laughs> um, I'm putting all at the time, 235 pounds of my weight on the brake pedal <laughs> yep. with both feet, trying to main, just trying to stay at a reasonable speed, not mm -hmm. even stop. And we blow through the stop sign at the bottom of the intersection, and I turn the car left, and we're like squealing. Uh, we keep the tires trying to keep us from sliding, and I we come to a complete stop, lose all momentum probably about a hundred feet from our house and we push it the rest of the way, but it is the craziest story. It sounds too good to be true, but I have three other people who we can call right now and say that this is 100% fact. I believe you. I believe you. It is. It, it was, that was probably my craziest moment in college. It's funny that you mentioned the Taco Bell. So in college, uh, I had a bunch of fun experiences like building computers, uh, transitioning from like console gaming to computer gaming, building my own, like, off the wall, crazy gaming uh, computers and yes. working in the hospital. Uh, but one of the interesting memories and ones that I always cherish was uh, I had a, so University of Maryland uh, in College Park had a pretty big campus and it was a slight yeah. hill to it. And uh, in the, you know, junior and senior year, it was more consolidated. So only had to only go to a couple of buildings. And that's when I found going from the engineering building to the math building where there was the smallest Taco Bell you've ever seen. 
and I could get like a loaded nacho supreme for like less than two bucks. So I ate and there. That's why you go, man. That's why you go. So I ate you're, there for you're a broke college student. <laughs> yes. Lug, know, lugging that now, to my propulsion class, trying to eat this before yeah. class started. <laughs> you're a broke college student and you want a hot plate and yeah. you have nothing in the pantry at home. Taco Bell will always be there for it, you. It was always my friend. And that's why even as an adult, you still have to pay your respects every now and then and go back. Because, yeah. Because Taco Bell was there for you. Or if you need to clean your stomach out, Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need to replace your lining. Yeah. So that's a good Another memory. crazy thing. Oh, my God. Like, no joke. Um, and then to add insult to injury, I promise I'm almost done. Then we can go on to the actual work at hand here. But um, um, I have the car towed to, thank God for AAA, I had the car towed to the nearest uh, um Toyota dealership, which was 30 minutes away. Yep. Um, and their service center, they wanted a hundred dollars to diagnose it. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I threw a rod. Yeah. I blew the engine. It's like, yeah, it'll still be a hundred dollars to diagnose it. And I'm like, really, come out here, pop the hood to the yep. engine. It's like, I'm pretty sure they don't make exhibition case back. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure they don't put windows on the side of the engine block. And that little rod right there is supposed to be inside. <laughs> but That's funny. First article. Yeah. What do you got for us, Ben? Uh, you want me to kick it off? Sure. I got uh, article. Wait a minute. Was I supposed to go first? I'll go first. That's fine. You go first. I'll go first. Uh, so uh, in the past couple episodes, we've been talking a lot about Porsche. Uh, and again, they've come up on my feed and actually, uh, I found this both in our research and my buddy Scott sent this to me, uh, both car guys talking about, uh, cars offline and, yes. uh, Porsche is doing something interesting. Hopefully it'll take, it'll get to the consumer market sometime soon. But what they're doing is printing pistons, uh, for the engines. Uh, what they're doing is testing yes. it out on the 911 GT two RS. Um, and it's really interesting. So, uh, you know, they have uh, these yes. small pistons that they're printing. And the, the cool thing, so it's not a design they'd said, oh, we're doing it in subtractive. Let's take the exact same design and make it into additive. What they're doing is they're adding cooling ducts that made, and also made the, um, the pistons 10% lighter, which actually it's a really uh, undervalued um, call, yes. uh, weight savings in pistons. You're uh, reducing a rotational mass, yeah. which means your yeah. engine can rev higher and yep. faster. Yep. And it can come down faster, yeah. too. Yeah, your velocity or pistons can uh, Which means you increase. can shift gears faster. Yeah, everything, everybody wins. Everything um, wins, man. So before everyone gets too excited, still in the prototype phase. It's not like the uh, the coated yeah, rotors we talked is. about a couple a while ago. Uh, but they did manufacture a set of pistons and ran through ran them through a test bench. Uh, the test bench simulates 200 hours of an endurance race, which is amazing. That's a long time to be that is, yeah. cycling anything through it. And completed the test with no issues. Uh, the big result, so... They did a test. They wanted to see if it works. The article claims that they dropped the cooling uh, temperatures at the piston ring zone by 68 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's a fairly right. uh, fairly big change in being able to reduce the temperature. Uh, in addition to that, being you know getting the temperature down, they're able to squeeze an additional 30 horsepower by just making these uh, changes to the uh, piston. So overall, right. I mean, they're talking about, uh, you know, a 600 horsepower engine, you know, with these modifications and some increases getting to 700 horsepower and being more fuel efficient about it. So it's a, it's a very interesting look at, uh, at uh, you know, getting to the core of the technology and one of the riskier parts, right? You've got these wrought pistons yes. that you've got years and years of experience that are probably these unique materials that no one else is using. 
Uh, now you're going to switch to additive, which it's typically a, a, a forged component, especially yep. in a performance car like yeah, this. Absolutely. You know, you, you've, it's a forged and milled component that yep. can't, it can't be done any other way. Yeah. Yep. And then Porsche was like, hold my beer. <laughs> so Con Driver talked about it. And it's a very good article about uh, how additive is slowly getting into, I wouldn't say slowly, it's building the confidence getting into the consumer right. market. And, uh, right. you know, overall, I think, you know, Volkswagen and some other uh, companies are getting, are, have done it on, say, non-critical parts. Even in aerospace, mm-hmm. Pratt Whitney was doing that uh, a couple of years ago on non-flight critical uh, brackets. And now they're, you're seeing a transition into critical hardware, which GE has, you know, kind of pioneered on on some of the nozzles, things right. like that. But getting to, one, the scale that they need nozzles to... Nozzles and impeller blades. Yep. I, you know, I wouldn't say Porsche is super high volume, but part of the Porsche group will definitely trickle down into some of the other groups if they're able to prove some of savings. So, you know, you, I wouldn't Absolutely. be surprised if you'd see little four-cylinder engines with some printed en- um, pistons that you know, able to crank out, you know, five, 600 horsepower at some point in the future. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah, it's, it's insane how much a four-cylinder makes today. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Even, even the entry-level Porsches, like the Boxster and mm-hmm. the Cayman, which uh, sadly are not entry-level enough for... <laughs> the likes of you um, but uh, but uh you know they're using four cylinders now yeah and they're still making as much power if not more certainly more torque but just as much power uh with a turbo four than they would an na naturally aspirated flat six boxer yeah. six excuse me yeah but i do have to cry foul okay a little bit i'm I, now look, let me ease into it this is still an experimental stage correct and um, what's really cool is Porsche was totally open with releasing pictures and really the nitty gritty details of their tests so far. They did, yeah. So the, the proprietary aluminum alloy has come from the company Mall, Mail, yes, M A H L E. I don't know how to say their company. Correct. The, the the alloy is called M one seventy four. Yep, and it is made up of aluminum, silicon, copper, nitrogen, and. Uh, manganese i don't think that's magnesium mg is that mag, uh magnesium or manganese that's magnesium magnesium okay yep. that makes sense magnesium is much lighter than manganese uh or manganese um but anyway they did notice uh you can tell in these pictures that there's a bit of porosity on the face of the piston oh sure and there's some light cracking on the surface it's only yeah. surface cracking yeah. um around yeah. the uh the joints of the wrist pins um, but my my actual beef is, and it's not with Porsche. It's actually the beef with Car and Driver and publications in general. And they are highlighting the they glorifying the use of additive when I don't think additive should be the technology that's highlighted here. Oh, okay. Uh, and it, I, I, tell me because you you and I know for a fact that. This piston was designed with using some sort of generative design program. Oh, yeah, I see where you're headed. Uh, potentially, yeah. maybe. Yeah, I it's could... just it's just the means to which to produce a generative design. Yeah, yeah, is so... additive is typically additive, especially when we're talking about lightweighting. Yeah, I see your point there. So the uh, the idea so additive has been around for a while. It's a fairly robust process, but the big takeaway is that they're able to design something that is significantly. Uh, more efficient or they have some certain parameters they're trying to achieve on the design side and they're able to carry that design into the manufacturing process yeah so the fact ferdinand that you added it yeah ferdinand porsche did not design this piston right an algorithm right. did <laughs> potentially well, more than more than that you yeah know? yeah 
but that's that's my only beat but it's so cool i i'm yeah. so excited for this and porsche's really been killing it lately with uh with how how crazy they're going and yeah. that's the beauty of an independent car company <laughs> they just do whatever they want <laughs> unless they're expensive version of porsche is essentially mazda because you know sure. they're not controlled by anybody sadly porsche actually is controlled by volkswagen audi group right, but right the good news is volkswagen and audi even though they own porsche they're still like hey you guys have been successful on your own yep. keep doing what you do yeah we, we just we just want your share yep. you know yep uh what's your article that we've you're also, you have a, an article also on the additive don't you yeah, yeah. I've uh, got an article on laser control in additive manufacturing leads to magnetic patterns and steel. Nice. So this team of material science researchers at EMPA, Swiss Federal Laboratories for Material Science and Technology in Dubendorf, Switzerland, yep. um, they were studying the phenomena that varying the size of the steel or varying the size of the melt pool in laser-based 3D printing, metal additive, um, changes the magnetic properties of the deposited steel. Okay. Um, and this has typically been viewed as a disadvantage of using laser metal additive, laser metal AM. And um, But this team has found out that if you tune, you know, the size of your melt pool and the speed at which the laser, you know, drags across, you know, your material. I forget the exact term for that. Um, but essentially, if, if you tune the, go figure, if you tune the speeds and feeds of Metal AM just sure. right, you can do some really cool things. And additive is finally at that sort of level that, you know, subtractive has been at for like the longest time. And that, you know, we're, we're figuring out the little minutia, uh, the little, you know, uh, it, just traits of of at am and they basically were able to um you using the the speed and the size of the melt pool mm -hmm. uh, when printing certain alloys uh certain metal alloys you can adjust the magnetism of the layers and down to like the micron That's so cool. basically stepping back to what does all this mean essentially um, you can adjust, you, you can, you can do layer upon layer of different, um, treatments of micron thin layers of metal that are varying, uh, layer by layer. So right. it, it's just, I don't know, I'll stop, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it, interesting. it's just Look, wild what they were able to do yeah. and, and the ability to produce, here's a quote, the ability to produce different alloy compositions with micrometer precision in a single component um, could be, for example, be helpful in uh, designing more efficient electric motors. Right. Um, as it's now possible to build the stator and the rotor of the electric motor from um, magnetically finely structured materials, making better use of geometry of the magnetic fields. It's just, it's wild how. It, it's it, it, I don't know, man. I'm just I don't even know what to say. How wild this is because you, 
it's just another thing for generative design to take advantage of additive with. Well, it's an interesting uh, concept because we've seen that a couple of times when they're able to vary the material properties within the material itself. So one of the earlier yeah. ones we saw were varying the hardness of the material within the yeah, like growth heat pattern. treatments and yeah, stuff. Exactly. And now they're able to apply magnetics to it. And then, you know, um, still cutting edge is uh, being able to grow glass, um, transparent glass. Right. Uh, optically clear glass and they're changing the refractory uh, rates to that also so it's a interesting process where you know everyone's concerned about how strong it is or can i create ha cavities but definitely see a wave of new products where they're varying it's a, the shape is simple but they're varying the properties through that shape so i definitely see that, yeah, that uh, and that's actually a perfect analogy bringing up glass yeah because yeah, you know, like look at look at optics for crying out loud. Like like consumer optics. I sure. mean, you know the difference between a two hundred dollar set of binoculars and a two thousand dollar set of binoculars. You can get two of the same looking models. Mm -hmm. That that price differential of eighteen hundred dollars. It's all in the glass. Right. How right. it was manufactured and how crystal clear it is. Yeah. And it's it's differences that most people's eyes can't even pick up. Yeah. Yeah. But some people really want to pay for it. But yeah. there's a really cool picture in this article that shows uh, on an electron microscope level uh, the different magnetic fields in the steel as it's printed. And, man, I remember not too long ago the biggest fault of additive manufacturing was uh, surface finish. Sure. And now they are down to precision levels that they can not only make it the, the printed material – smoother and, and cleaner but looking at this picture just lets you know holy holy hell they are uh zeroing in on <laughs> the, the magnetic properties the alignments of electrons right you know? yep awesome uh, the last article i've got here is about a prototype shop so an interesting article there's a you know they're heavily focusing on um implementing uh wire edm in the shop and this is from um precision engineering solutions uh, right. website and but the big there's a couple of key, key takeaways that I, I got from the article uh, so the article talks about uh, this prototype shop uh, over in the uk and how they've progressed or increased their capabilities uh, the technology capabilities when their facility uh, so you know early in their uh, development early in their um, in the company they started adding um, 3d printers for plastics for polymers um, and then they look at like uh, 10 12 UK company linear uh potentially i'm not sure is it the pvc company uh no no it's a different company oh, okay uh so what they've done is uh you know they first started adding um 3d printers for polymers and then they started adding uh, a bunch of different materials so most recently their equipment includes uh adding, uh, adding 3d uh printers so they actually right. added a, a couple of years ago uh, uh an aluminum was their first one uh for printing aluminum sorry uh they added second for printing just 316 stainless steel which is interesting. Wow. I'm not sure why they chose just that material, but they have a, a, a separate machine for that. And then they added uh, another machine recently uh, for adding for uh, printing uh, titanium. Uh, Steve, guess how much that uh, printer costed? Uh, I'm I'm assuming a whole lot. <laughs> uh, the article mentions 1.8 million pounds. So since they're UK, so you know, <laughs> two million dollars of real money. Uh, Two million plus in, in, in real currency. In real currency. So it's a real heavy investment, but they saw a path of, you know, um, and the interesting uh, path that they took of segregating machines by material type, which is pretty common in welding applications. You know, my previous world, we uh, had specific equipment for 
handling stainless steels and ink canals, okay. and then a different set of material for handling ink canal. And then we weren't even allowed to bring any aluminum material to weld in that specific shop. Aluminum had to be uh, physically segregated uh, since we're um, processing uh, oh. stainless steels and titanium. You didn't want to uh, get cross-contamination. What was the danger in that? Uh, it's the way you process uh, aluminum uh, and uh, cross-contamination of getting that infiltrated in the stainless or in the titanium. Okay. Um, so you know, you most of our uh, tooling was aluminum, but being able to process aluminum was different than how we process the other materials. So you would put the the the, the structural integrity, yeah. molecular integrity of the material you want at risk by accidentally contaminating yeah, correct, it. Correct, okay. correct. Uh, and of course, since you're printing the parts, you're going to have to do some type of uh, post-processing, subtractive manufacturing uh, to those grown parts. And they have a large five-axis universal machining center, which is great. I think that's a great way to handle uh, these uh, unique parts. Um, and of course, recently, actually, the article gets into adding uh, EDM capabilities, specifically wire EDM. Uh, and the you know the big take takeaway is you know mapping out their capability growth. So they started off with uh, I would say they're fairly cutting edge. You know, they're taking a fair amount of risk of buying the machines early, uh, but they mapped out a, a, a progression path probably based on their customer demand and how they handled uh, materials. So, if, you know, if you're a subtractor shop getting into additive, you know, now you're handling powder materials or so the safety risk of that. Now you've got to handle cross-contamination issues. Uh, so it's a fair amount of um, thought in terms of uh, their technology path of uh, integrating these new machines. And of course, you know, the 3D printer isn't the machine, isn't useful by itself. It's always uh, post-processing that you're going to have to right. do. So even though now they're a prototype shop that can 3D print, now they're machining those. So another path for other companies would be to start machining uh, 3D printed parts with uh, companies that are only printing. So those you are mean moving the workpiece from you know your additive machine yeah. into a subtractive machine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, so I thought it was a very interesting look of you know handling different materials within your own shop, uh, yeah. technology progression, and you know in the end you know you're trying to achieve what the market can uh, can bear, and it's a really interesting look of uh, uh, a prototype shop being successful at uh, being flexible. Now, now, let me ask before we move on. Um, I know you mentioned welding. Sometimes you'd have like welders uh, that only work with one particular material. They could do another material, but they focus on that one to sure. uh, to, to minimize the risk of contamination. Would would, would it was it ever done um, that way with subtractive? Would you ever have a machining center that Sure, a machining center can handle multiple materials, but this particular machine only does the stainless steel coming out of. You could. So there's uh, two, um, say, driving factors for that is the machine capability. So if you have, you know, if you're cutting aluminum, you know, you want something prior higher, uh, higher spindle speed. You don't need as much horsepower. Right. Um, yeah. You know, you can traverse faster and things like that. So you want to chew through that material as fast as possible. But if as soon as you get into like super alloys or um, uh, you know, hard milling, then you need higher horsepower. It's probably a bigger machine. You need different tapers. Right. Uh, so that kind of defines it. Um, the other thing that uh, you want to be cautious of is getting the scrap material. So if you're cutting aluminum, the scrap material value isn't super high. So if it gets a little contamination, it's probably not a big issue. So if you have a couple of grades of aluminum or uh, maybe if you 
happen to get some some uh, stainless steel if in a part changeover into the raw okay. into the yeah. scrap bin. It's not as bad as if you're handling pure nickel alloys, uh, where the scrap rate is significantly higher, and if you get any contamination, your scrap rate takes a big dive, right? So that's a big cost, okay. big driver in your cost uh, analysis. Right. Okay. Wow. So, uh, Steve, let's end on your last article. I heard you got something about uh, John Deere. Dude, John Deere, man. The last, uh, the last type, the title of the article was "How John Deere Got Good at AI." And, <laughs> I feel like they would and, enjoy that article too. It's not slanderous towards towards them. I think or they would, man. I mean, that John Deere's an awesome company. I've got you know fond memories of a classmate in high school who like is. It was seemingly like, you know, when other kids were talking about, other students were talking about, like, you know, what their dream car was. And, you know, I was drooling over whatever the latest Porsche supercar was to mention them again. There was this one guy who's very country. His name was TJ. Uh He was like, he always had, like, when when we were in civilian clothes, because it was a military school, he was always repping something that was john deere <laughs> nothing runs like a deer i know yeah. that motto only because of tj that's awesome but anyway um yeah man <laughs> but uh so dj or not you, man, john deere um we use an ai um and basically going back to like machining a little bit um one of your favorite topics minimum quantity lubrication yeah definitely that's you my know, favorite the concept of Minimum quantity lubrication is sending cutting fluid exactly where it needs to be yep. and just the right amount. Yep. So no, you're not wasting any fluid and it's not going on anything that it's not supposed to be on. Right. Um, John Deere is actually taking a similar approach um, to their use of herbicides and pesticides and they're utilizing AI in their by by means of um using it to figure out where to disperse their their chemicals appropriately mm-hmm. so they don't get chemicals where it shouldn't be and to not overuse it because i'm sure a lot of people uh especially at supermarkets could probably tell you how you know you want to buy organic because they don't use as much pesticides or whatever sure. but it's like you know there's there's other ways to doing this and john deere's basically taking that approach we yeah, get it and that's they, a, they get it there's yep. too much chemicals going on to produce and whatnot but you still need the stuff so they are using ai to figure out how to use the right amount and to send it where it needs to be yeah so yeah good on john deere for doing that and that's a fascinating approach because I, I do like the idea that you know if you harvest the right historical data both inputs and outputs and successes and kind of being able to correlate the two um, inputs and output and helping that to train your data sets. That's the underlying problem we've talked to um, when talking to data scientists is, yeah, we can help solve uh, business needs and help make more money. But in the end, how do you train the algorithm to help solve that problem if you don't have the data, right? So being able to make sure the data is clean, make sure the data is correct, uh, and then being able to connect that with the business problem that I'm glad to see John Deere, you know, branching out a little bit, not just producing equipment, but also getting into helping, you know, the individual consumer, or in this case, an individual farmer with his business need and his problem statement of, hey, we got this cool widget. Let's help you solve the pesticide problem or help you, you know, reduce the cost basically is uh, instead of applying to the entire field, uh, apply it to just where it's needed. I thought it was an awesome approach. That's right. 
Nothing runs like a deer. Nothing runs like a deer. Never thought we would be applying that to uh, program code. <laughs> I would not assume we'd now be we are. <laughs> using that on the podcast. That's <laughs> <laughs> so awesome. Awesome. Uh, today's episode was sponsored by IMTS. Please check out uh, imts.com slash supply chain for more information about rebuilding supply chain. See where can they find more info about us? They can find more info about us by going to amtnews.org. And um, they can also find out more about me and the test bed uh, by visiting the Amateur Machinist blog at swarfysteve.blogspot.com. And uh, you can listen to more of these podcasts by using your favorite podcast app and searching AMT Tech Trends. Awesome. That was a great episode, Steve. It was fun. Yep. Bye, everybody. See ya.